garage and hope no gardens. Do all the things you wanted to do all summer, all day, all night. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Call 1-800-441-4410 for reservations at Pocono Gardens and beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. Hello and welcome to FW Presents, the Omnibus Show for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and this is the 10th and, for now, final installment of my series, Mountain Comics, where I talk about the beloved comics that I purchased while on vacation with my family up in the Poconos from the 70s and 80s. And joining me to talk about Super Friends number 8, one of my favorite mountain comics, is our pal from the network, Zoom Yukonori. Hi, Zoom. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm doing just great. I hope you enjoy the view from the uh, from the porch of the Capitol, looking out over the lake here. Oh yes, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's <laughs> it's very um, it's very relaxing. Oh, just excellent. What, just what I needed. Exactly. That fresh fresh mountain air. All right, that's exactly what it's all about. So, like I said, uh, we're here to talk about Super Friends number eight, which was on sale August sixteenth, nineteen seventy seven, which was my birthday. I was I turned six. On August 16th, 1977. Uh, the story is The Mind Killers by E. Nelson Bridwell, Ramona Fraden, and Bob Smith. And the plot is such. Uh, this is, By the way, I should mention, this is part two of a story. So I was coming into this, to this story uh, not having seen the first part, but we'll get into all that momentarily. Uh, warned by the Wonder Twins, the Justice League looks for bombs hidden by the alien villain Grax on Earth's continents with the help from several international superheroes. In this issue, Red Tornado joins forces with Tuatara from New Zealand. Batman works with the Bushmaster of Venezuela. Green Lantern teams with Jack-O-Lantern of Ireland. The Atom with Rising Sun of Japan. And Black Canary with Thunderlord of Taiwan. Each, they find and disarm five more bombs. And then at the end of the story, we find out that there are even more bombs going on uh, that have to be found. And that leads us to part three. But, of course, that's the next issue. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this, this story only has 17 pages. This was uh, when DC Comics were at the height of their ads-to-content ratio. Uh, so there's not a whole ton to say here. But I this is a beloved comic for a bunch of different reasons. And Zoom, why did you want to talk about this one? Oh, well, you know, the Super Friends is, was basically my doorway or uh, the gateway drug is that what you called it? To to DC Comics, right? I I wouldn't have found out about the Justice League without having watched the Super Friends program, as I explained on the Done in One Wonders podcast, Wonder Show, right? Uh, episode one. So, um, but to be honest, I I have not seen these Super Friends comics until much later, actually. Um, so, the, I, I even though this issue, which actually was part of a story that actually introduced the Wonder Twins. Right, it, right. It, it, actually, it actually came on the stands a month before the premiere of the all-new Super Friends Hour that introduced the Wonder Twins on Saturday morning television. So that was a bit of a, of a preview for, for the comics readers as well, which kind of this story was supposed to explain the, the transition from Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog to the Wonder Twins and Gleek. My understanding. Yeah, it's they're introduced. Uh, the the Wonder Twins are first introduced in the previous issue as they phase mm-hmm. out Wendy and Marvin. They're going to go off and kind of you know, graduate stuff like that, and then it, it concludes with the, uh, the 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 next issue. And in this issue's letter column, there is a letter from Daryl McNeil, who was an animator and a writer on the Super Friends TV show, and he talks about the new iteration of the show coming on the air. So he he gives people the inside scoop in the letters page. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It also features I, I, a letter by Jerry Siegel, by the way. Hmm. I'll have to take a look at that now. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, when I was a, when I was a kid, I made no qualitative difference between Super Friends and Justice League. I don't think I really acknowledged or understood that it was meant to be like a younger reader's book. Uh, I think I I was the same way with um, Spidey Super Stories. You know, I just regarded it as another Spider-Man book. I guess if I had thought about it, I would have said, well, these stories are a lot simpler than the ones over in Spectacular Spider-Man or Amazing Spider-Man. But I just, I, you know, I just grabbed it because I liked it. And so Super Friends, I just was like, oh, this is just some sort of like alternate Justice League book. And I didn't think of it, you know, beyond that. And I loved it. Now, when I was going back and uh, looking at Mike's Amazing World and looking at the covers of all these mm-hmm. series. Now, I have I have read eventually every issue of Super Friends because I said I love this book, all 47 of them. But, yeah, but when I look back at the first seven issues, I have no memory of ever having those as a kid, ever. I bet this was probably the first issue of Super Friends I ever saw on the stands. Because this one I remember having as a kid, and I don't remember one through seven. So this might have been my introduction to the series. This might have been like, oh, wow, there's a Super Friends comic? I didn't know that. Or if I had, I hadn't seen it. So this might have been the beginning of all this. And like I said, after I bought this one, I bought every one until the very final issue. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I I ended up coming in a bit late. Um, I think... Um, when I was overseas, my uncle would send me these little care packages of comic books. And I think he included a Super Friends because uh, Sinestro was on the cover and he knew I liked the Green Lantern. Um, I can't remember the issue number offhand, which is usually something I can do. So I guess I'm getting old. Um, But after that, I was like, oh, wow, I I didn't even know this comic was... um, uh, was this good? You know, I've, I've heard of the Super Friends comic, but um, but I, I didn't seem to have much of an interest of it until I actually read that. It had it had um, Sinestro and Hector Hammond and Queen Bee in it. Um, so I, I basically asked if, if there were other issues. And, and my uncle actually had some of the older ones, and he basically stopped buying it. I guess he didn't find it as enjoyable um, as the regular Justice League comic. So he actually sent me, like, the first um, six or seven issues. In the next care package, so I got to read those Wendy and Marvin and Wonder Dog adventures. <laughs> Where do you come down on the whole Wendy and Marvin versus Wonder Twins uh, eternal debate? Oh, there's an eternal debate. I think so, yes. Well, yes. Well, you know, the... Basically, you know... Because <laughs> I love the... the long pause. You really had to think about that. <laughs> I did have to think about that. You, you... I should have prepared for this one. Um, to, to start, the Wonder Twins had powers. Which made sense um, to be superheroes in training. I didn't quite understand why Wendy and Marvin were superheroes in training on the television show until I actually read the E. Nelson Bridwell letter column on the first issue of the Super Friends comic, which was several years after the fact. So it was like, oh, so that's why Marvin was there. That's why Wendy was there. That's the connection to them. That's why they. That's why they were being groomed to right. be, I guess, crime fighters, if not superpowered crime fighters. I mean, Marvin thought he had superpowers. He had a super leap, which was basically due to cartoon physics more than anything <laughs> else. You know. So, um, <laughs> but it, but they didn't. They didn't actually have powers. But. Um, um, Wonder Dog was like another Scooby Doo yeah. um, analog. And, um, and I guess I tolerated that cause I like Scooby-Doo, but, um, and you know, Wendy and Marvin seem to have this habit of finding out who the big villain is, if you can call them a villain, cause they're mostly misguided scientists or aliens that are, that, that basically have noble intentions. They just don't have very noble ways of carrying them out. Um, but the fact that they end up stumbling onto the the villain's lair or who the villain is and finding out more about them before the super friends do, you know, I, it got a little tiring. 
<laughs> and I think that might be why you know it was a, it was very formulaic and and it happened in in almost every single episode, and I think that might be why. Uh, they kind of get a bad rap in fandom, I suppose, is because they were just part of a, of, of a cliche. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Wonder Twins and Gleek were more comic relief than Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog were, even though they did bring the comic relief, too. I mean, you know, you've heard the expression, and then you're laughing, which mm-hmm. means that, you know, it means you come to the end. Um, because every cartoon does that, and, and it's usually because of something that either... Uh, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog do at the end, or something that the Wonder Twins and Gleek does at the end. Um, uh, so I, I think they both get a bad rap for that for that um, reason. But you know, I, I actually like both of them. But I, I guess I have to prefer the Wonder Twins because they actually have powers. Right. And they're actually, they're actually pretty amazing powers when you really think about it. I mean, most people think the powers are stupid, but to be able to turn into any type of animal—that's pretty. From, yeah, it's a good. That's pretty useful. And it's and it's any animal in the universe too, which they actually did more in the Super Friends comic than uh, on the show itself. Usually, Jaina would change into some kind of Earth animal of some sort. Um, but the um, uh, and and of course, Zan was pretty much like a power ring type of thing. It's just you know he can he can become anything as long as it's made out of ice or water. Right. Yeah, I've heard. I I prefer Wendy and Marvin. I can't even explain why exactly. Uh, but but it's funny. Uh, Chris Franklin hates Marvin. He just hates him, and I find that really <laughs> charming because Chris Franklin just generally doesn't hate much of anything. Like he's a very good natured person, but he just he just goes into fits of rage when it comes up with Marvin. So there's something about maybe that voice that just just drives him to distraction. But but yes. I, I I'm sure that as a as a if you're trying to write cartoon stories, it's so much easier to write Wonder Twins because they can do stuff. As you just said, they have powers. Mm-hmm. Wendy and Marvin, you're right. They were constantly stumbling. Oh, it's Professor Geek's geek machine. You know, they were always having to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I understand that. Now, um, in terms of this this comic, we've been talking about everything but the comic. I mean, the cover. The cover is yes. by, of course, Ramona Fraden and Bob Smith. And for my money, Bob Smith was Ramona Fraden's best anchor. I mean, I to me, they are a perfect combination. I mean, you just look at the line that Bob Smith gets on these little profiles of the Super Friends that are on the mm-hmm. right-hand side of this cover, and it's just perfect. Like, it's just a flawless combination. It's, like, just cartoony enough to kind of give it that kid-like feel, but it has enough substance and, and reality to make it look, you know, plausible. And it's an interesting right. layout in that you've kind of got all the characters peeking in from sort of nowhere, really. It's like a separate mm-hmm. panel, and they're they're commenting on the action of as uh, this uh, drooling dinosaur is about to eat Red Tornado. I think it's a it's a very unusual layout. Yes, it is. It is. And, and what I really like about uh, Ramon and Freyden's artwork is that it's, it's very much reminiscent of Alex Toth without ripping off mm-hmm. Alex Toth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's it, Toth was the big on simplicity. You know, like, you mm. need to keep taking things out. And the more you took out, the better it got. And it was only you, – you had to have such an, uh, a basic solid structure underneath the details for it to work because if, if your drawing was terrible and you remove all the details and everyone can see your drawing is terrible. But Totes was so good and so solid and, and Frayden has that same command. And so I love that – you look at like something like Robin as he's poking into the front. Like it's just that jawline. It's just that one little line. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's just perfect. It's just perfect. Oh, so, yeah. you know, um, it's great. And, and I was wondering about the, I was wondering about the rings, the smoke rings that are mm-hmm. surrounding them, whether that's 
because it doesn't look like it's Red Tornado's power. No. But I was wondering if it's supposed to be the mists of time, which is I showing that, you so. know, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's even though they're even though they're colored like the Red Tornado's tornado rings would be. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, Superman mentions we must beat that menace in the past. I think it's very funny that of all the crossover characters, we've got Green Lantern, the Atom, Black Canary. It's Red Tornado that they choose to put on the cover, probably the least sales generating character of all. But, you know, well, well, there's two things about that. I mean, if you if you count the number of pages of these separate encounters that that happen between the team ups between a super friend and one of the international heroes, Red Tornadoes is actually the longest. It's mm-hmm. it's four pages long, while the others have three. And, and of course, Black Canary gets only two and a half. Um, and, and also, this is actually um, the first comic book, the first Justice League story comic book, right after Red Tornado rejoined the Justice League. Oh, right. 1977, uh, it, sure, when he rejoined yeah. in 146 with Hawkgirl. That's right. That's right. So this is technically Red Tornado's first Justice League adventure right after he became a member, if we were to believe that this was in DC Comics continuity, which E. Nelson Bridwell was trying to make this comic book do. Right. That was a big thing on for him. He was he had to he had to fit it all together. He couldn't live without yeah. things being out of continuity. And it was very interesting. And we and we can talk about that later. I don't want to distract too much from the comic book, but um, maybe we should kind of get to the to the story. I mean, yes. to to me, it read like a Super Friends adventure on the television program, which was fine by me. It was it was great. Uh, you know, you have a Super Friend hero teaming up with a new international hero, as I mentioned, to penetrate some bizarre barrier of some sort to deactivate a bomb that would destroy all of humanity in some unique way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and while they're essentially racing against the clock, for some reason, the heroes seem to be taking turns and these missions are not really happening simultaneously, you know, and, <laughs> and, ev- and everybody gets a turn, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Superman and Flash at the beginning, um, you know, Superman and Flash and Elongated Man, they come back from their their missions, and then they just kick back in the JLA satellite and watch the other heroes take right. care of their assignments <laughs> on the monitor. Let's watch the Batman show. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's see Green Arrow do his thing yeah. later, you know. <laughs> um you know, maybe Superman was so tired out by why what happened in the previous issue. Um I, I don't know. You know and, and of course, the the villain Grax was very kind to not have all of his bombs go off at the same time. Yes. Yeah. He's very accommodating to the to the Super Friends uh, schedule here. One of the things I really <laughs> loved about when the Justice League would show up in Super Friends is that it gave me a chance to see the other JLAers drawn by Ramona Freighton, which you didn't mm, get to yes. see a lot. That's why I always loved it when Jim Aparo ended up drawing Justice League for some reason, you know, in a couple of panels. Like, I was like, wow, I get to see heroes, I, you know, I mean – there's a million drawings of Batman by Jim Aparo and Aquaman and like the Phantom Stranger, but he didn't get to see Jim Aparo draw the Flash very much. So here you've got like a elongated right. man when he when he ropes a Gleek using his, his his powers. It's like wow, it's it's elongated man being done by Ramona Freyd, which I never get to see, and that's just such a treat. Yes, I know, and and I do love in that panel where they're they're basically trying to keep Wonder Dog and Gleek from fighting. Um, oh, and Gleek has an elastic tail power, which is interesting. I guess he has had that on the show. But but just the fact that at the end of that page, um, you know, they're just like, oh, the fate in the world's in the balance. And we're just we're just playing with the pets, you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, at least they realize the scope of what's going on in yeah. the background. Yeah. <laughs> Superman has that sheesh look on his, on his face. Yes, exactly, exactly. I noticed in the opening credits, there's a uh, it says a credit for somebody named Nick Pascal. It says for his help in designing costumes. 
So uh, he, whoever Mr. Pascal is, he must have been involved because this is the first appearance of four of the Guardians of the Galaxy. This uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, if only. But, no, well, they, they have big hopes. Yes. Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> this, first the globe, is, then uh, the galaxy. Yeah, this is the first appearance of Rising Sun, Jack O'Lantern, Thunderlord, Bushmaster, and Tuatar. So the first chapter is when we have Adam and Rising Sun. What do yes. you think of? I mean, you know, you're a very talented artist. What do you think of the of Rising Sun's look in particular? I really think it's a pretty sharp costume. It is. It's very simple. It's it's got that um, it's got that uh, Japanese traditional motif. Of course, it's got the Rising Sun symbol of the flag, but it doesn't seem too. Um, it doesn't seem too. Uh, what what's the word I want to say? Um, well, samurai is different. You know, Samurai is the Japanese hero that was on the show, and that just seemed like overly, um, I guess, stereotypical Japanese mm-hmm. of sorts, where where um, Rising Sun doesn't seem to have that. It seems to be very subtle in comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very elegant design. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I, we... You know, the, one of the problems you have with when, when you have, I think, American um, creators creating characters from other lands is they tend to, mm-hmm. like, really hit heavily on the cultural stuff. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, Jack O'Lantern's Ireland. I mean, it's practically like, you know, Captain Shillelagh. You know, like, they hit, like, they really, <laughs> <laughs> they really tend to hit it on the nose. And I'm guessing, yes. like, if you had, like, a if you had a, 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 a comic book writer from another country try and, from, try and come up with an American superhero, you know, I guess it would be like a NASCAR guy, you know? <laughs> and he would be wrapped in the American flag and he would be talking about, yep. you know, whatever. But it's Or, or a redneck or someone that, yeah, that exactly, sounds like Donald right. Trump, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's what we're, that's, yeah. what, that's what we're conveying to the world right now. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, which is probably good that we don't maybe have uh, other heroes that we're introducing sweat introducing swagger man from america (laughs) yeah exactly horrifying uh but uh, but i mean i don't know i think these characters are generally you know pretty pretty good in that regard i don't think there's any i mean some of them are a little more ridiculous i don't you know i shouldn't say ridiculous that's not fair i think some of them are a little more ridiculous let's just all right okay (laughs) we will get the bushmaster moment so what do you think of the next chapter is um Green Lantern and, and Jack O'Lantern. I actually really kind of like Jack O'Lantern's design. Like, you just get the hood with just the eyes. I think it's actually kind of cool. Yeah, it, it, it looks kind of scary. He's yeah. kind of like a uh, he's kind of like an Irish Batman of uh, of sorts. Um, even with the uh, color scheme, it 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 does look very. Um, he looks very menacing. Even yeah. his lantern looks menacing, and I think it's because of those furrowing eyes. Mm-hmm. His you know. dialogue is a little like you know. At one point, he's punching the, dino, the the creature, and he's like, "Well, I can still give him a good thumping." And he's like, "Lie down, you plaguey scalpeen!" You know, <laughs> so it's not. He doesn't least, talk like Batman. Least, he's like Batman in a Lucky Charms commercial. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, mean, I think the design is the design's pretty sure. I mean, it reminds me of um the the Hangman from Watchmen. Of all yes, things, you know, he's just got that's those right. Eyes, so yeah, I, sure. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if um, I wonder if that actually influenced the Hangman's design. I don't know. Um, and of course, you know, Jack O' Lantern is used to good effect post crisis in 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 the DC comics, and we can talk about that later too. Of course, I don't oh, want to distract. Think I, I don't think I knew that. Okay, he's returned. Yeah, we 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 can talk about that. Um, we can talk about that later okay. when we go we right. go into the fair enough. The, the I 
I don't want to distract from the story right now. I, right. I, yes. Uh, and so the next chapter is Red Tornado and Tuatara. Uh, yes. I have to say Tuatara's costume, that, that that one's not working for me. That little <laughs> that little thing on top of his head, I don't know what that's about. Well, you know, a Tuatara is a type of lizard. So, But why he named himself after a lizard because he's got a third eye, which the, I don't think the lizard has a third eye or can see through time. So I, I honestly don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I really think that 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 at the bottom of page nine, after Tuatara was accidentally dragged through time in the Red Tornado, I think he was really regretting having a full face mask. <laughs> he's up tall. He's like, and he's getting down on the ground. Yeah, he's got to pull that thing off. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. This is he's not inspiring. I think a whole lot of uh, what not fear that somebody's trying to do, but he's just he just not he's not a terribly inspiring looking character. No, and I don't know if he's supposed to strike fear in the hearts. I mean, all he can do is just see through time. That yeah. that seems to be all he can do. Um, and, and I and I take it that third eye is actually his own eye. So if you took off his mask, he'll, he'll have an eye in the middle of his forehead, which is oh, kind boy. of freaky. So yeah. it's not like he has a secret identity. Maybe he has to wear a headband or something <laughs> all the time. But, you know, just backtracking, you know, in case your listeners were not um, um, just so that they weren't mishearing. Yes, Red Tornado was able to travel in time under his own power in this chapter of the story, which, which is very cool. But he he never used this ability in the DC comics outside of the Super Friends for some reason. Yeah, that's a new one on me. But, you know, on the Super Friends television show, you have Batman who has a plane that can break the this time barrier. Good time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a rocket that can travel between dimensions. So yeah. I suppose, you know, if the Super Friends comic book Red Tornado is able to travel in time, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Wayne, why are we experimenting in Wayne Tech with time travel technology? Yeah, just trust me, all right? <laughs> Lucius, is it, is it called Fox Enterprises? It is not, all right? Just leave me alone. So, uh, yeah, the next chapter is Batman and Robin and Bushmaster and, yeah... Bushmaster's costume. You know, it's it's it reminds me of Copperhead. <laughs> yes. And I and I like Copperhead right. actually. So I guess it's not too bad. But then when you get that part where he's landing on the water and then his boots adapt and he's able to walk on the water on on page um on page thirteen. That looks ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he all of a sudden gets the big webbed feet kind of thing, and he's able to. I like the wings when he when he develops the wings. Like oh, I think yes. that, that's kind of cool. But yeah, the the feet thing is just not. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I would have liked to see more of the wings. You can barely see the wings from that angle, but it, right. it, it's effective. It's yeah. effective. And and I guess I should say, you know, Ramona Fraden is really good at at doing these dynamic camera angles. It's like what it's just like watching it on on television. Uses that same dramatic. Um, Dramatic change of, of camera views. Yeah, it's, yeah. See, she was great. Not only not only a great uh, draftswoman, but a great layout artist. I mean, she knew how to tell the story. Can I just say, yeah. in the ages before, I think these pre-printed pages. Like, think about every time one of the artists had to do a super pencil page, they had to do those rounded corners for every panel. It's a lot of extra work. Yeah, and the reason they're rounded corners is because they're being watched on the monitor. Mm-hmm. On the Justice League satellite, and it's like, yeah, the, and going back to the Red Tornado, they're all in those rounded corners, which means they, they have monitors that can look through time. Isn't that awesome? That's good. That's some good technology they got going. Who needs to, who needs to a Toro when you have the Justice League satellite? Yeah. <laughs> now, we have Batman and Robin uh, wrestling the lizards underwater, and at no point yes. are they putting on any scuba gear. Mm-hmm. We don't know how long this takes, but, uh, you know, wow. Like, they just dive yeah. underwater, and they're there. And Robin... 
throws a, one of the lizards against another. Like, doesn't that take a whole lot of strength? Like, he's just oh, a kid. Yeah, that's true. But he is underwater. Things are lighter when you're underwater. Oh, there you go. All right, that's but all. then there's a lot of drag. I don't know if you'd really be able to, you know, if I was to swing the, uh, a, a pool thing underwater, you know, I probably wouldn't hit it very hard, yeah. whatever I'm hitting with. So, yeah, it, it, it is an, an immense um, uh, feat of strength there. Yeah. So, well, and at least they're not talking underwater. Right, that's true. Yeah, they're just getting all their action. Yeah, they're just hand- handling it. Because, yeah, we would have been talking. We're like, uh, wait a minute, hold on. Um, yeah. And so the next chapter, you've got Black Canary and uh, uh, Thunderlord. I love his name. I, that is a great name for a kid. Thunderlord? That sounds Thunderlord, badass. Yes. Yeah. And I like <laughs> his pendant, his little, thunder, his little lightning bolt pendant. That looks mm-hmm. cool. I mean, what do you think of the costume? It's very, it's very um, simple. I, I don't know about um, powder blue, but <laughs> a but you know if I like. a little yeah, it does look like pajamas. Yes, but you know what? If it was in black and white, I think it would look very impressive. I, I'm not quite sure what would be a good um, what would be a good color though, because when you think of thunder, you think of lightning and you think of yellow, but it's right. going to look awful in yellow too. So. Um, you know, they they did what they could, but yes, it's a, it's a it's a nice it's a nice simple elegant costume design. I agree. You could do black and yellow, but then he would look like Black Adam, I guess, because that's the color scheme. That's uh, true. There is a panel that I find very intriguing, which is on the last panel of the story, where after mm-hmm. Black Canary has found the bomb and Black uh, Thunderlord is like, "Black Canary, you all right?" And then in panel two, he has his arms around her. And he has a grin on his face, which would really make me, I think if Green Arrow saw this, he would get very upset. Oh, yes. And, of course, it's on the monitor, so I'm sure it's been recorded. Yeah, yeah, right. And in the, well, in the very next panel, we see Green Arrow there. So maybe he even saw it. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Wonder Woman is not just holding up her hand to explain there are more bombs. She's actually holding Green Arrow yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that must be it. But, uh, yes, it, it's... it's uh, yeah, well, of course, you know, Thunderlord was just helping Black Canary up, but he sure looked happy to be helping her up. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, hey, you can blame it's Black Canary, you know. Uh, and it's, it's at the end of the story where Wonder Woman and Aquaman show up, and then they go off, and then it becomes the next issue. But, I mean, this this was really the, the beginning of Super Friends for me. I'm mean, sure I love this. Con- I've, I've been watching the Super Friends since I was sentient, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't remember a time where I didn't watch Super Friends, so... Uh, whether I must have been aware that there was a Super Friends comic, I'm sure I saw ads for it, but you know, in the days of spotty newsstand distribution, I probably couldn't yep. find it. So I was thrilled to get this one, and I think this was the beginning. This was like, all right, Super Friends is a regular buy now, and all the way up until issue 47, until they canceled it. And I even bought that special edition that they put out, which was like at, at like department stores or some weird thing. I forget where even you got that. But, uh, right. but this, yeah, this is a fun. This is a fun book. It's it is. It's very much like the comic book. Which is what Brett Wells is trying to achieve, and of course, with with Fraden style, it looks like the cartoon. Yeah, that's right. It's it, it's it's great, and and I've watched the I watched the Super Friends cartoon when it first came out in in seventy three, and and to be honest, because I was uh, overseas and in, in the UK, that was the only season they were showing on television there. Um, I wasn't able to watch Challenge of the Super Friends until it got into syndication much later. Um, in the eighties. Um, so this, this was, this was the, um, 
the Wendy and Marvin years were pretty, pretty much the super friends that I grew up with for a while. Um, unlike, uh, unlike you, which had the advantage of being able to see the all new super friends hour and, and challenge of the super friends while you were still a kid. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. I just ate it up. I just, every version of super friends, I, I, I just, I just ate it up with a spoon. It was, it was just fantastic. So yeah. now you mentioned, uh, Jack O'Lantern, the Jack O'Lantern has come back in, in like a in, in more recent, where is that? I'm not familiar well, yeah. with that. Well, I should mention that, you know, um, um, e- e- when we were talking about how E. Nelson Bridwell was trying to make the Super Friends comic book fit into regular DC Comics continuity, you know, um, the the characters, most of the characters, like Win- uh, Wendy and Marvin and the Wonder Twins, and even some of those supervillains like the World Beater and Overlord and Futuro and the Menagerie Man. Do you remember him? <laughs> I that, yes, I yes, I he, do. I do. He, remember he, he was the fan, he was the Phantom with leopard undershorts. Yes. Yes. On on his on his outer pants, <laughs> but uh, or were they or were they tiger? No, I think they were leopard. Anyway, um, but but they were never featured in other DC comics, and the only exception were these new international heroes. Um, most of them, anyway. Pre Crisis uh, came out as as the Global Guardians um, uh, in an issue of DC Comics Presents Volume One, Issue Forty Six. Now, not all of them. Um, the, the bionic suit-powered Bushmaster and the three-eyed uh, Tuatara was, were sadly not among them. I wonder why. Um, but they were included in a Global Guardians entry in the first edition of Who's Who, right, the definitive right. director of the, of the DC Universe, issue 9. They, they did show up in that two-panel spread, and this was still pre-crisis at that time, I believe. But um, in, in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, issue 46, that was also written by E. Nelson Bridwell. And this was when the, the heroes were first brought together by Dr. Mist to become the Global Guardians, by the way. And the story actually did make some references to some of these Super Friends comic adventures because Jack-O-Lantern was in that issue and Superman made a reference of, oh, yes, Green Lantern said some good things about you. But, <laughs> but, you know, but, but the story, the story um, did not have those editor notes that referenced the Super Friends comics uh, ish, uh, that, that they were talking about. You usually see that little asterisk. And, of course, you know, Superman's talking about Green Lantern's partnership with Jack-O-Lantern and Super Friends number, you know, but it, it, they didn't have those. Um, and, and I guess, you know, eventually it became pretty much apparent that, you know, what, what, what essentially happened in the Super Friends comic stayed in the Super Friends comic, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I believe it was understood later that they essentially happened on this parallel Earth that had the same Earth One history prior to the to the Super Friends stories. Um, in fact, I read a reference somewhere that said that this was that, that, that these stories took place on Earth B, which was the Bob Haney crazy stories. Ah, I guess. right. And now the B stands for Bridwell. Bridwell I'm, trying to yeah. where, I'm trying to remember where I, I read that. Um, but anyway, post-crisis, the Global Guardians, including Tuatara and Bushmaster, actually, they all played a role in some Justice League international storylines, which I'm sure Shag Matthews will get to eventually on his podcast, the JLI uh, Bwahaha podcast. Um, but I can, I think I can just say that they were manipulated by the Queen Bee to fight the, 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 the Justice League International, which, of course, reminds me of some early Squadron Supreme stories in the Avengers where they had those Justice League analogs. Right, right. So it's interesting that they, they found a way to, to use some of these. Um, some of them are interesting, some of them are ridiculous, and maybe that's why they were used in Justice League International, perhaps. Um, but but I'm, I'm glad that they were able to, to, to get some new life. Yeah, they're perfectly suitable characters, and they look great in that Who's Who listing. I think they're Ed- Eduardo Barreto drew that, from my memory serves. That's, so that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And and Tuatara looked 
darn good in that in that in that uh, in that two page spread. Interesting. All right, well, maybe so. Uh, so you... did so did Bushmaster actually. He did not look ridiculous. <laughs> See, it all depends on who draws it, really. Um, well, Ramona Freighton's a great artist. Well, that's true. That's true. But uh, not knocking not knocking Ms. Freighton at all. No. Oh no 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 never never never. Um, it's funny you mentioned uh, the Squadron Supreme and your those are Marvel characters, of course, and that that reminds me of the one last thing I wanted to mention about this comic that on the letters page, um, a a letter writer mentions that there is a character in a previous issue named Anthony Stark. And he mm. thought that was funny because it was like, we obviously reference. And E. Nelson Bridwell says, we might consider bringing this character back if the folks who handle Iron Man at Marvel would go along with the gag. Back then, that was completely verboten to mention yep. other the other company's comics. I mean, Marvel used to refer to DC as the distinguished competition. And yes. was, you just never did it. And I love that E. Nelson Bridwell, in what is ostensibly a kid's comic, felt okay enough to do that. Like, to, to mention the title by name in the answer. I thought that's that's really charming. Yeah, that's interesting. In fact, I was surprised by the latest episode of The Flash actually referencing the Incredible Hulk. Um, which was on CW. and if, Yeah, it does. There's oh, actually wow. a line that Felicity spouts out that actually mentions the Incredible Hulk, which is very interesting. So, um, um uh, but you're, you know, you're right. You don't really see a whole lot of that, that cross, um, at least in the comics, you don't see a lot of those cross references anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I just think that's really charming. I love Nelson Bridwell. I wish he was still around. He would be probably a fun guy to talk to about all the, all the DC lore that he know. God, if just for my treasury cast, I'd love to talk to him for all the stuff he did. So, but this is, this is a great comic. Obviously I loved it because it, it started my love affair with the super friends comic, which lasted all the way till the end. I think just a great book. And I'm, I, I have a vague, memory of which store I bought it in up in the up in the Poconos. I think I, there was a um, a Woolworths that carried comics, and I think I got it up there. That's sort of a hazy memory of that, but I I, I remember being with all the comics. It was only six at the time, so I mean, good mm-hmm. Lord, it was forty years ago, literally forty years ago. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm I'm so glad that I stumbled upon it because uh, obviously it wasn't a, a book that. At, the, at least in the early days, it was carried at home. So uh, thank thank you, Newsstand Distribution up in the Poconos. Yeah, there you go. And you only see the villain in one panel in this story. Oh, right, Grax. Grax. Yes. Everybody everybody talks about Grax, and you're like, oh, it makes you think that Grax is this longtime Superman villain. Right. And actually he was. He, he showed up a couple times in the Silver Age. Oh, did he? Okay. I noticed yeah. in the footnote it mentions that he's a previous villain, but I didn't know to how far back he goes. Yeah, well, he first showed up in Action Comics Volume 1, Issue 342. Um, in that story, he was actually a self-imposed rival of Brainiac. Um, <laughs> Brainiac is a 12th-level intelligence, as you know, as everyone who reads The Legion knows. Um and Grax, of course, has a 20th level intelligence. So he felt that he was superior to Brainiac. But despite this superior intellect, Grax was not able to create a force field device as good as Brainiac could. Mm. So he actually stole Brainiac's device. That was part of the story. And he used it in a scheme to try and destroy the Earth um, as revenge for the Man of Steel for thwarting some alien exploits that he talked about but we never saw on the panel. And... Um, his plan was to attach this bomb on Superman and then shield the entire Earth so that Superman couldn't leave. And the bomb wouldn't destroy Superman, but it would destroy the planet. But, of course, Brainiac didn't like the idea that, that Grax stole his force field. So Brainiac actually helped Superman secretly on how ah. to get out of that situation. And then, of course, Superman in return helped Brainiac get his force field device back. And then they 
basically had a truce and they parted ways until the next time they fought. The enemy of the enemy is my friend. Indeed, indeed. And then and then Grax shows up again in the Bronze Age in a two-part story in Action Comics Volume 1, issues 417 and 418. And that, that, that was an issue in which he teamed up with Lex Luthor, a villain called the Marauder, and interestingly enough, Brainiac. Uh, and that was in a scheme that involved phantom doubles of Superman that were causing havoc. Um, and then, of course, after this three-part Super Friends story, Grax shows up one more time in Super Friends Volume 1, Issue 38, where he used a device to turn the Super Friends intangible so that they could not thwart yet another plan to destroy the Earth. (laughs) But of course, this story, you know, Grax had 12 different bombs that did 12 different things, and they were protected by 12 different forms of barriers, including a time barrier that Red Tornado had to go through. Grax really loved to show off that 20th level intellect. (laughs) Well, if I had one, I would do it too, probably. I mean, it's pretty impressive stuff. So, uh, so this is it. This is a great, it's a fun comic, and I'm glad yep. we got a chance to talk about it. So uh, we are going to do uh, some listener feedback. I haven't done listener feedback for Mountain Comics yet, but we're going to do that after I run some uh, podcast promos. Uh, but before that, I do want to say thank you, Zoom, for coming on. And why don't you tell people where they can find you on the Internet? Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And and yes, um, on the interwebs, I've created a blog site called Omelette au Fromage, which can be found at zoom-yukonori.blogspot.com. Uh, I designed the blog to help people who do not know me to get to know me and to help people who do know me to get to know me a little better. Um, and I also make regular artistic contributions to The Line It Is Drawn, which is a weekly sketch challenge feature on the Comic Book Resources website at cbr.com. And finally, I have been honored to have a Fire & Water Network podcast of my own, which is the Done & One Wonders podcast wonder show, which will spotlight my favorite Done & One comic stories, mostly from DC's Bronze Age. Uh, two episodes are already available for listening, and I should have the third episode with guest host Solomon Grundy coming up very soon on the Fire <laughs> Water Podcast Network. Another regular from the Super Friends universe, Solomon Grande. Yes, indeed. He he. Well, hmm, he does not like mansplaining. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Solomon Grande, feel that everyone can understand things properly. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't do a Solomon Grande. We already have two people in the network that can do Solomon Grande. We only need a third. So well, one uh, of them is Solomon Grande. So you don't want to get him upset. <laughs> that's true. So anyway, Zoom. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I love doing these looks back and looks back, look backs. I forget what the plural of that is. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I love your show. I think it's it's just terrific. You're a great podcaster and again thank you for doing this well thank you again for having me and uh you know your podcast inspired me to do mine so oh, if that idiot can do it i should be able to handle it my is opinion. that is that how you're translating my compliment <laughs> that's how i do it that's um, i'm racked with self-doubt so come on so anyway uh yeah we're gonna uh, we're gonna run some podcast promos i'm gonna come back with some listener feedback and i'm gonna talk about why this is the uh, for now, last episode of Mountain Comics. But in the meantime, uh, Zoom and I are going to have uh, some sodas, and we're going to sit out and look out over the lake and enjoy the uh, the Lake Lawn Paul Pack sunset. So uh, we'll be right back. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team. Operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit, 
Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the league through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukinori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire & Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. We are going to do some listener feedback. Uh, I am going to be doing feedback from all previous nine episodes of the Mountain Comic series. And since that is way more feedback than we could ever possibly get to, uh, I'm going to cherry pick and pick out one comment from every episode that we got up to this point. Uh, the first one is from episode one, which was Alpha Flight number 40 that I did with the Irredeemable Shag. We got comments from David Ace Gutierrez, Paul Hicks, Chris Franklin, Nicholas Prom, Siskoid, Diablo Frank and Lucian Dessar, who says, I enjoyed this episode. It reminded me of my childhood. Thanks. That's the idea, Lucian. My family would travel by a VW van, and I sat in the back, part of it, during the entire trip. My dad would buy me comics at the rest stops, usually the ones that had three comics in a bag, so it was very random. The worst was getting an Archie comic, and after reading through it to the end, discovering it was a religious Archie. My favorite were the Sergeant Rock comics. Um, yeah, I remember those those Archie, I think, Spire comics or something. I, I saw them once for sale up in the Poconos at a candle store of all places and just being baffled as to why Archie and Jughead were talking about Jesus or something. So, uh, But thank, thank you, Lucian, and thanks everybody for listening and leaving comments. Uh, episode 2, which was Avengers number 213 with Ryan Daly. We got comments from Chris Franklin, Siskoid, Lucien Tassar, Martin Gray, Mikey, Shag, Nathaniel Wayne, Tim Price, and Dr. Ange, who says... Like Ryan, I only officially read this within the last couple of years. My comic store had a whole run of this era of Avengers in the dollar box, and I was able to grab this issue, the one where Pym goes on trial, and some others. This definitely reads as a brutal display of a mentally disturbed person. They could have explained it away with evil doppelganger, demon possession, actually a scrawl, or even unstable Pym particles in the brain, 
but leaving it as, nope, that was Hank, has, he leaves him with this albatross around him. I can only imagine reading it as a kid. I still can't believe him saying no to Janet to go putter around in his lap. That is more unbelievable than a Norse god being among them. Yeah, I think I commented that with Ryan. At, uh, even at that age, I was a little like, what the hell is Hank thinking? So uh, thanks, everybody, for the comments. Episode 3 was Incredible Hulk number 301 with Michael Bailey. We got comments from Chris Franklin, Gene Hendricks, Lucien Desar, Siskoid, and Ryan Daly, who says, The Mantlo Buscema run of The Incredible Hulk is one I've only started reading fairly recently, and I'm loving it. Where had these stories been all my life? What a fool I was to think Mike Diodato was the best Hulk artist. The story gave me an idea for a future Hulk movie. Since Universal maintains the distribution rights to any solo Hulk films, and for whatever reason they're not playing nice with the Marvel Disney, I really, really badly want to see the Hulk show up in the next Doctor Strange. It can be a sort of mini Defenders movie. Not like the Netflix Defenders, of course, but the original comic. Maybe they'll figure out what to do with Namor by then. But either way, Doctor Strange and the Hulk are such a fun combo, I hope we see a lot of them in the films. Yeah, agreed, Ryan. I mean, presumably they'll cross over in Avengers Infinity War. I hope they get a couple scenes together. Because, yeah, I, I love the um, original Defenders comic. And I guess with Silver Surfer over at Fox and Namor... I don't know where Namor, who has the rights to Namor. We probably will never see that sort of version of a, a Defenders, but man, it would be it would be fun. Uh, thanks everybody for the comments. Episode four was Batman three seventeen with Chris Franklin. We got comments from Chuck Coletta, Martin Gray, Dishwater Danny, Ted Kilvington, Siskoid, and Tom Panarese, who says, "Always love hearing about mountain comics, Rob. Also love hearing the really old Poconos Vacation commercial in the introduction." I was more familiar with the All You Have to Do is Bring Your Love of Everything, Mount Airy Lodge, that aired throughout the mid-80s and early 1990s. Yeah, I was surprised there's very little uh, commercial stuff like about the Poconos available on YouTube. I would have thought there would have been some more touristy stuff, but uh, the Mount Airy Lodge was the closest we could get. A lot of those ads from that time are, are burned into my brain because, as I, as I said in various episodes, um, we didn't have a TV. We just had the radio. So all the commercial jingles are just so familiar to me. Uh, it's a lot of stuff coming out of Scranton, a lot of like ads from mini malls and things like that. So, yeah, I, I instantly hear all that stuff. I'll have to go do a deep dive um, for more of that kind of stuff on YouTube to see if I can, I can find it because I love hearing all that stuff. Episode 5 was Micronauts, number 35, again with Shag. We got comments from Michelle Fife, Bradley Null, and Chris Franklin, Mark Baker-Wright, Paul Hicks, Diablo Frank, Edwin Latore, and from Siskoid, who says, My first issue of Micronauts was a coverless copy of number three, which I've since lost because it was a mountain comic, i.e. something I got while on vacation, shared custody. It was not a book I ever saw in the stands in my hometown. The height of my Micronauts reading at the time was the Micronauts X-Men mini. I've since picked up a lot of Micronauts comics. As with Rom, a toy tie-in that has no business being as good as it is. Man, the comics god, bless Bill Mantlo. Yeah, that, that is absolutely uh, true, Siskoid. Uh, Micronauts was a, like a really good book. And so when you think about that, it really just came as a, a product tie-in. Uh, they really put a lot of effort into it. I've never read Rom. I don't think I even read like a single issue. So uh, I know a lot of people are fans of it. I know Chris Ryall from IDW was like the biggest ROM fan I know. So he speaks really highly of it. So maybe I'll have to give that book a try. I remember the ads were really cool. They, they looked really neat. I never had the toy either. Maybe that's part of the reason I never got the comic. Uh, episode 6 was Teen Titans number 51 with Dan Greenfield from 13 Dimension. We got comments from Paul Hicks, David S. Gutierrez, James Williams, Martin Gray, Chris Franklin, and Siskoid, Ward Hill Terry, Dabu Frank, and Clinton Robinson, who says, man, six episodes in, and I'm not hearing about a mediocre comic yet. I had some vacation comics, i.e. comics I bought while on trips with the family. But aside from a random superpowers issue and another random swamp thing, I don't think anything comes close to the power these mountain comics hold. Keep doing these episodes, Rob. I dread the day when you run out of these books to talk about. 
Well, uh, I got some good news and some bad news on that front. We'll get to that momentarily. Uh, there are a lot of mountain comics uh, to go through. I, I My initial list uh, had something like 30 titles on it, and that was just kind of the first pass. So don't worry about ever running out of material. There's, there's a lot of mountain comics. I bought a lot of comics back then. Episode 7 was Avengers number 237 with Michelle Fifay. We got comments from Siskoid, Chris Franklin, Tid Killington, Tim Price, Ward Hill Terry, Edo Besnar, Shag, and Michael Lane, who says, always happy to hear Roger Stern get some love. He's one of my favorite comic book writers. He was a writing he was writing Avengers and Superman when I started collecting their titles, and it's probably why I developed a lifelong attachment to both. It does make me sad that his name does not seem to get brought up as much as the other classic writers among fandom. I have always thought he deserved to be listed among the best. I think the point made on the show about how he gave each character their own voice was spot on. He excelled at making each character feel like a real person with their own distinct personality, no matter how small their role be in a particular story. And his undersea storyline on the Avengers, in which the Masters of Evil take over the mansion, is my all-time favorite Avengers story. Thank you, Michael. And yes, I was glad that we got a chance to uh, give a shout-out to Roger Stern. Michelle Fifay uh, particularly wanted to wanted to mention it. Yeah, I mean, Stern was just, again, well, as we mentioned, kind of like Roger Stern was just one of those workhorses who just didn't come with that sort of like superstar personality like Byrne or Frank Miller or, you know, uh, Walt Simonson or something like that. But it doesn't mean their work was any less uh, interesting. And so, yeah, and Marvel and DC depended on these guys. These were the guys that really – you know, did the, the long runs of these books in between these sort of superstar runs. So, yeah, Roger Stern was just terrific. Episode 8 was Captain America number 263 with the great J.M. Demetrius. Got comments from Michelle Fifay, Ido Bosnar, Paul Hicks, Tim Price, Son Taran, Shag, and Chris Franklin, who says, there was going to be a Marvel Treasury Edition featuring Red Brown? I'm now heartsick. Yeah, those movies are bad, but I love them anyway, and so does my daughter for some reason. The Demetrius Zek run was my true introduction to Caps Comics proper and what a great run to come in on. Newsstand distribution dogged me getting every issue, but I hunted for it every month. Their work assured Caps' position as my favorite Marvel hero as well. I can't agree more with Mr. Demetrius' estimation of Caps' character and the idea that comics help us keep that kid inside us alive. That kid is the most pure, honest version of ourselves, and I for one agree that it's very important to stay in touch with that. They rarely steer you wrong. Very intrigued by this animated project he spoke of. He was behind the pen of many of the best episodes of Justice League Unlimited and Batman the Brave and the Bold, so I know this has to be good. Always a pleasure to hear from him on the network. I hope to meet him at a con one day to thank him for the years of entertainment he's given me. Yeah, it was a true honor to have uh, Jam on the show. He's just a great guy and a great writer, and I was so thrilled to be able to talk to him about his own work. As I mentioned on the show, the idea that the uh, 10-year-old me, when I read that comic, would someday be friends with the guy that wrote it. just seems uh, it would have seemed implausible. So it was awesome. I really was very honored for Jam to come on the show. And finally, episode 9 was Amazing Spider-Man number 222 with Max Romero. Got comments from Tim Price, Shag, Edobos, Nar, who says, Great conversation, gentlemen. I also had this issue, but then again, I was a regular reader of Spider-Man at the time. And I agree that it's a little fun issue all around. A good story with some nice character moments for Spider-Man and Peter Parker, both in and out of costume. And I like the repurposing of the villain. It's a really color idea, and Speed Demon is such a cool name with a really cool costume to boot. Of course, when your former name is Wizard and you're wearing a yellow costume, pretty much anything is to step up. Uh, all true points, Ado. Thank you. Uh, and we did get a couple of uh, email comments that I wanted to mention. First of all, we got one from Brian Rosen, 
in regards to this issue. I just got done listening to the most recent episode that covered Spider-Man number 222. I don't remember when I added this book to my collection, but I'm sure it wasn't when I was a kid. It was a nice, fun story, as you also mentioned. You guys continue to deliver great podcasts. However, my favorite part was the song you used at the end of the episode. I never expected to hear Joey Scarberry's Greatest American Hero theme. Feel free to play this on the show as often as you want. Looking forward to the next episode, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I ended every episode with a song that was on the radio at the time that was a hit song. Uh, because as as I said previously, the radio was a big part of uh, those trips up in the Poconos. And so uh, I like to, to pull out uh, hits from the time. And so uh, that was like, I think, like the number one hit from that week of 1981. So, yeah, that's, that's why I was on there. I, I had fun digging, digging out all those old 80s songs. And then finally, uh, we got an email from Keith A. Bowman, who says, I just wanted to reach out and let you guys know how much I enjoy your podcast. I'm a 48-year-old illustrator, creative director who has been a geek all my life. I discovered Rob's Mountain Comics this weekend, actually while I was camping in the Poconos. I couldn't believe it that growing up, my parents had a cabin in the Poconos, and every time we went up there, we would stop at a small grocery, five and dime store, and I would get a few comics. Some of the comics I remember getting were the Treasury Edition of the Star Wars comics, Machine Man, Flash and Friends Digest, DC's Year's Best Comics and Stories 1979, and Dial H for Hero, just to name a few. Uh, I was so entranced by Keith's email because I, I realized that he's only a couple years older than me, and he was buying comics up in the Poconos in the 80s. So him and, him and I might have shopped at the same store. So I wrote Keith, and I asked him and mentioned that, and he couldn't remember any of the specific stores. But he agreed that it's it's entirely possible that him and I probably shopped at some of the same newsstands probably around the same time. So that just gave me a real thrill to know that um, – you know, there was another kid in there probably buying some of the same comics that I got. And, and if there were ever any comics I couldn't find, it's probably because Keith got them first. So thank you for the thank you for the comment, Keith. And thanks, everybody, for uh, the feedback. I really appreciate it. Um, as I mentioned, I think at the top of the series, the first episode, I didn't know what the response would be because these are so specific to my memory. And I didn't know if it would translate, but... but uh, People have been really very great about these episodes. And, and that brings me to the next announcement where I am uh, going to tell you all that this is the, for the time being, the last episode of Mountain Comics. Uh, Mountain Comics, to me, is is much like the, the trips of the Pokemons themselves, is a summer thing. It's a spring and summer thing. It's a warm weather thing. We never went to the Poconos in the winter. It was always meant to be a warm a warm weather kind of experience. And so continuing to do these through the winter just feels kind of wrong. And I would like to take a little bit of a break with these. So this episode number 10 will be the last one for a little while. The show will come back in the spring sometime. I have a whole bunch of other comics to cover. Don't worry, Clinton. We will never run out of them. So uh, these 10 are going to do it for now. Uh, we're going to take the winter off, and I'll come back sometime in the spring with Mountain Comics Episode 11. Uh, so until then, again, thank you, everybody, for the comments and the feedback and uh, the uh, the retweets and the Facebook likes and shares. Uh, it really uh, means a lot to me because, as I said, th- these comics are like some of my most beloved possessions, and I'm really – I'm happy that I get a chance to talk about them, and I thank everybody for coming on. Uh, Everybody was nice enough to come on and and talk with me about these books. So, again, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, I will see you guys in the spring. Bye. Take it from me if you can.
trust me. 